and welcome to Unsourced Wall. My name is Elvis, and as always, I'm your host. Okay, this is going to be a long one, not only because we have a bunch of things to review today, but also because a lot of those things were actually pretty good. And when things are good, I really love to go on and on about why they're good and why I love them so much. So, well, I'm just glad it's a great week. Although, it does mean I have to edit and record a lot more, so bittersweet. First things first, let's hit the ground running with the brand new trailer for Wonder Woman 1984 because it sure is something. And it's going to take a lot to parse it all out. It's a fantastic trailer. It's lively, energetic, bold, and very unashamed of everything it's going for. One thing I always like about the first Wonder Woman movie and what seems to be holding true for this one is that they were more or less kind of like what comic movies used to be back in the early 2000s where there were some concessions for pragmatism and suspension of disbelief but more often than not they really tried to exist in some sort of hyper reality with no allowances for overly self-aware winks and nods to placate the audience just very self-assured but it goes a bit farther than that because this trailer not only simply looks fun but it also confirms script leaks that have been out for months since September at least, and trust me, this movie is going to be ridiculous. When I first read those leaks, I thought that this sounds so dumb, so wacky, too over the top, and just impossible to make any sense of. But now that I see how they're going for it, how they're going to execute it, with the visuals, the tone, and the atmosphere, it's all in the details. And a movie whose craft seems to have some talent behind it, and a plot that is maybe the truest of form for any kind of early Bronze Age goofiness, it's something special. It's something new. I'm going to call it where superhero movies might have gone if the Nolan trilogy or the MCU hadn't existed. I'm excited. If the movie can live up to this trailer, then it might be able to make that insanely goofball story work. And that'll blow people away. Fingers crossed. Also, I love Steve Trevor. I think these movies have nailed his character, his dynamic, and his purpose with Wonder Woman. I can't wait. Moving ahead, we have the somewhat tiring news that David Benioff and D.B. Weiss are going to be adapting Keith Giffen's graphic novel Lovecraft for an actual movie. Which is kind of funny, given that the comic itself was adapted from an unproduced screenplay by the same name. And to just get it out of the way, I think they're going to mess it up. The graphic novel, and presumably the script, is a ridiculously odd thing. It's the closest thing you could get to doing an action-adventure or Fright Night-style plot with Lovecraft as the main character. It even has a torrid and smoldering romance between Lovecraft and his wife, Sonya Green, where it hits every cliché branch on the way down. It's not that great of a comic, but it is insanely fun. It has some wit, some humor, and a lot more self-awareness and wryness that keep it afloat. And I don't think that David or DB are going to be able to pull it off. I think they're just going to do it too straight-laced, or even worse, boringly. I could see Sam Raimi or Peter Jackson or even Del Toro being able to pull this off because they can have that mixture of, well, being very genre, very cliche, but also having a lot of heart and emotion to it. I don't think that two of the most inept showrunners in recent history are going to be able to do that. Because, hell no. Fingers crossed, but I'm worried as hell. Also, for anyone wondering, his cat makes an appearance, and the cat's name is Necroman. So that comic sidesteps that entirely. That's the level of kind of softballing it the comic originally did. So going to be fun to see if that plays out on screen. And finally, we have the first trailer for an upcoming DC Universe CW show, Stargirl. And it looks pretty CW. Like, there's some more production value, and Luke Wilson is bringing it as Pat slash General hokey stepdad but star girl herself acts really stiffly and for a teaser it just makes the whole thing look absolutely generic it looks like there might be some more heart to it than your average cw show but i'm remaining cautious until the fat man sings because overall it looks pretty sparse and just doesn't have heartening feeling to it so that's a shame but i'm keeping an open mind and now we can head on into what I read this week. First off, we have Hawkman number 19. I was excited for this ever since I put down last month's issue. Because not only does it make Sky Tyrant 
a lot more of a fun character to read, but it also finally introduces Hawkwoman into the canon for the first time in forever. I think the only time previous to this was the quasi weird New 52 version that we haven't seen since the one-off Death of Hawkman miniseries. And honestly, both angles are done really well in this issue to boot. Sky Tyrant is such an over-the-top, incredibly smug, scheming bastard who just so unrepentant and genuinely petty and malicious. All traits befitting of his status as an Earth 3 you know, Hawkman. Like I said before, making the first few issues of this arc act like a, an emotional recapitulation on Hawkman's own wrath and anger issues and doing it pretty badly to boot was a disservice to what came after because it doesn't really set this up. If this was more set up, if this was a little more shadowed at, I think that those issues would have been a lot more entertaining and enjoyable. Hawkman herself is just a delight. We don't get much of her, but the way she and Sky Tyrant bounce off each other and have their own little back and forth was very gratifying. It makes her seem instantly stalwart and dominant and it is just really really entertaining it's so fun to see this character finally take a great stance against well in this book especially since we haven't seen her in a long time and it's a great way to reintroduce her it also gives sky tyrant another needle to stick in carter's side which again is just incredibly enjoyable to read as an earth 3 story this could have nothing to do with you're the villain and just be an Earth 3 crime syndicate story and it would still work. That's what I like about it. It doesn't feel as beholden to the tie-in as it used to be because it no longer has to do with like whatever it was. It was called the promise or the gift or the offer and it's actually just more of its own thing that's it's incredibly wackadoodle and zany and I love it. I really do. We get some more backgrounding on Sky Turret than Shaira but it does give me hope that her playing more of a naturally expansive role could be a possibility in the next arc. Plus it sets up Adam coming to the rescue for his bro so hell yeah. Overall one thumb up, one thumb middle. I'm still a bit iffy on this, but it gives me a lot more enthusiasm for where this is going. Next up, we have the Immortal Hulk number 28. And this is pretty much the issue I was hoping last month's would be, at least in terms of tackling the actual ramifications of declaring war on a corporation like Roxxon, who seem to pride in their intangible existential grip on society. Now, rather than another punch-up, we see a more in-depth look at what that actually means, and how both sides are really entangled in this overarching conflict. We get this little micro-story about a family being torn apart and manipulated by Roxxon's control over the media, on social culture, and on the political climate, and how the Hulk adds to that and how that shatters. With both father and daughter being radicalized both overtly and subtly by Roxxon itself for its own ends, and ending up almost being like a false flag or shadow boxing. Like we get a surface level story of the father being pushed into this insane alt-right style mindset and even being you know, goaded into justifying killing his own daughter, while his daughter is part of this whole Antifa analog that's being co-opted by Roxxon itself. It's such a cynical and dark and immensely engaging view of things, and I love it because it gives this more relevance charged arc some gravitas. It makes clear the true weight of Hulk focusing on rocks in itself, like it gives that actual dramatic stakes, like it makes it purposeful, it makes it like, oh, so now him going against Roxxon has this immensely, insanely important factor to it, and I love it. I thought that was the only way that Ewing can make this work as like the big changing the world story and I'm totally with it for now. Plus, Zemnu is on the way, and I can't wait for that. Zemnu is for the children. He's hilarious. He's such an unforgettable and iconic part of the Hulk mythos, so I can't wait for him to show up. And he segues perfectly into what Roxxon is trying to do here by playing not only with the temperament of people, but also every facet of society. And this one's going to be entertainment and sort of rebranding and repackaging and commodifying actual political ideals. So that's hefty stuff, and I just I'm just so excited. So overall, two thumbs up. And lastly, we have The Dark Knight Returns, The Golden Child. This is the second one-shot that Frank Miller has done for his sprawling Dark Knight 
Knight Universe Saga, the first being one that detailed the death of Jason Todd a few years ago. And I have to say, The Golden Child was incredible. I won't sugarcoat it, it's also insanely messy. The plot, as it stands, is a jumble of various fragments and sequences, a lot which don't work together, or were already in the middle of whatever they were doing, so we're just dropped right in. And so it reads intensely disjointed and cluttered. But each of those fragments, those sequences, set pieces, character beats, and moments, they're pitch perfect each making for what has to be one of the strongest comics that Miller has ever written in years, coupled with art that can truly understand and relate what he's going for better than any artist has done other than himself. Raphael Grampa's creativity and verb in construction, drafting, and panel layout make every page pop and feel exhilarating, thrilling, and now now joy to read. There are several pages that would not look out of place among any random page in Dark Knight Returns or Dark Knight Strikes Again, although the latter is mostly due to Jordi Belair's coloring, which is insane and intense and Lynn Varley would be proud. I'm not even joking there. The story and characters also help along this immensely, with Carrie Kelly having come into her own as Batman and embodying a new generation and expression of Miller's whole crazy-ass vigilante style of hero. Being borderline psychotic and dude bro-y in how she maneuvers through situations, it's so fascinating and hilarious to see how that comes about. Lara, on the other hand, gets a bit of a short end of the stick, with what seems to be Miller regressing her character back to where she was in Strikes Again, away from how it developed in the Master Race. I feel like Miller has some issues with Dark Knight 3 and so this allows for its own spin on where her emotional core progresses, and it's nice enough, but a little bit disappointing. However, it leads us straight to John Kent, because he is that emotional core. And he is this surprisingly, shockingly, pseudo-benevolently altruistic figure. A boy who balances the larger-than-life stature and ego of Miller's Kryptonians with the heart and care that Superman should have. It's very similar to how Miller depicted young Superman in his recent Year One miniseries. He ends up being this interesting and awkwardly adorable presence in this comic, and one that I hope we see more of someday. But not to get too much into spoilers, the highlight for me is the unexpected presence of Darkseid. His integration into the story is incomprehensible, but it's actually incredibly thematic and has strong ties to his roots as the new god of totalitarianism or any stranglehold ideology like that, and works on more of an emotional basis. Even though, again, like I said, his surface level role in the story and how he links up with this new version of the Joker is complete nonsense. That aside, Miller understands the fundamental thematic root of Darkseid and everything else around him and writes him amazingly. It's maybe the best Darkseid in years, if not decades. Tipping the hat to more recent, more metaphysical portrayals, but also paying homage to the heart of Darkseid and delving more into Kirby's own foundation, playing up his grounded payness, ego, and restricted patheticism. So you get pages where he's shown as some sort of omega big bang, like very larger than life, but also smaller pages that show how much of a pitiful snake oil salesman he actually is, peddling his own influence, peddling his own ideology, and peddling his own grandiosity. Like he only works because you submit to him and you can take that away. And that I think is something that Kirby was very, very definite about within his fourfold saga. And Miller goes so far as to even cap this off with themes and tones that we haven't seen with the new gods since the Hunger Dogs. It's brilliant. Again, while the one shot is a mess of parts, the whole is greater than the sum of those parts, being a lively, timely, but also insanely enjoyable, deathy, and irascibly action-packed story in the tradition that only Miller himself could pull off. I do hope that we get the fourth Dark Knight volume he's been hinting at, because if it carries forth these tones, these characters, and these ideas, I'd be all in for sure. Two thumbs up. Maybe one of my favorite comics of the year. And finally, we've reached what I watched this week. First off, we have Crisis on Infinite Earths, parts 1 through 3. Well, I said I would never go back into the sewer that is the Arrowverse. And for the first time in years, I have broken that promise. Was it worth it? 
Not really, but also not altogether no. What I mean by that is, my hiatus from the CW stable DC shows had a twofold effect. I was not only able to forget how much I dislike every single little bit of the writing cliches that the shows drenched themselves in, but also I forgot how addictive and fun the hype of watching these shows live with others can be. I mean, it's false hype that has nothing to it, but there's something about live watching that can make a piece of crap just the most entertaining thing. And this, this isn't as bad as the Arrowverse can be. For these three episodes, for the most part, they've been all plot. Sure, there's some ridiculous and boring character threads and development that each episode is continuing on from their respective shows, but that all has seemingly taken a backseat to the danger, the crisis, and the stakes at hand. So most every episode is committed to a set of characters trying to do something rather than winching on about it or wringing their hands. I mean, there's a bit of that, and parts 1 and 3 are the worst of it, but it's a refreshing change of pace. Other than that, the miniseries is just another Arrowverse crossover. The first two parts make some attempt at seeming like a bigger, grander scale affair with some very minute and blink-and-you'll-miss-it cameos, and the second having actual sequences that showcase the larger scale heroes of the multiverse but at the end of the day, it's only the mainline Arrowverse characters that are important. Episode 3 makes significant strides to hammer home that the whole Infinite Earths thing, that whole gimmick, doesn't really matter. All the Earths that we could have seen, or the cameos that are only there for one frame, didn't matter. Pariah, his whole purpose and function, and the whole reason he's even in the story, doesn't matter. The death of the Flash, it's ridiculous, it's contrived, it's unemotional. They remove all context and impact from every single one of these aspects of the comic that make it great, that make it memorable, that make it iconic, that make it the best event comic that probably ever could have been done with this premise. And they just replace it with nothing. Well, not really nothing. They replace it with their usual focus on their stable of characters. And I understand that. I was ready and prepared for that. But for miniseries that everyone is trying to get people hyped about because it's the most exciting and ambitious crossover in DC TV history, it's an event 40 years in the making. Well, when you've already pulled the trigger and what you pulled the trigger on was just like a little squirt water gun, then there's not that much there for people to get excited about because all the cameos are done, they're over with. If you put all of them together in one long stretch, it wouldn't be longer than six minutes. That's how long of a percentage that the Infinite Earths was for this crossover and we're like two-thirds in and now that's going to be going on a one-month hiatus until the last two episodes come out i doubt the hype that brought people in will still be there it's not unwatchable but it's also nothing special it's just another generic hourverse crossover and maybe people expected more maybe people deserve more i don't know i'll give it two thumbs middle so far it's mediocre it's not painful and at the very least it gave us a nice sweet epilogue to smallville there are people there who have said that it makes no sense with the show, but that just proves you didn't watch the show and you didn't understand Smallville's Clark. So overall, that bit was perfect. And maybe that's all that really mattered. Moving ahead, we have Watchmen Episode 8, A God Walks Into a Bar. I would have enjoyed this episode more if it had nothing to do with Watchmen. There's just so much of a character disconnect between Dr. Manhattan in the comics and how he is in this episode, where he's insanely glib and overly emotional. And even when he's not supposed to be, he's just still really, really expressive. Other than that, it's fine. It's a nice romantic comedy style episode with a fun gimmick, but it's not the character, it's not the world, and it's not the tone or the atmosphere. It's just so far afield that I can't see how people can try to mesh them together at all. They call it more emotionally charged or based or mature than the comics version, but all those are diametrically opposed to what any of this means or is supposed to be structured as. And that's all I can really say because this is an episode that is just so dissonant with Watchmen and with the comic and with these characters that it's just me reviewing an episode of television and all I can say is it was fine. It's 
It's watchable. It was a little funny, but it's nothing to do with Watchmen. It has nothing to do with the actual story at hand other than like a big reveal. But the big reveal itself is just so undercooked and underwritten. And like I said, it had to really stretch everything out to make it work that, well, it's what was it worth it? Was it really, really worth it to make this uh, sequel to Watchmen if you can't really get the pieces together? Because they couldn't. They really couldn't. It's contrived. But as its own thing, it was okay. Overall, one thumb down, one thumb middle. Can't wait for this season's finale. And hopefully, at the very least, it ends off on a good note. And there are no listener questions this week. I just want to say thank you to everyone out there who's ever sent a question, comment, or topic to this show. It means so much to me. And I'm so grateful for that. So thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. And I can't be humbled enough by this because I'm just so grateful. And if anyone out there has their own question, comment, or topic they want to discuss on the show, you can always find me on Twitter at T-H-E underscore S-N-I-C-K-M-A-N. And I want to give a shout out to the cover artist for the show at D-O-T-E-M-C-E. Please shout them out. They're amazing and they deserve all the followers they can get. And I just want to say thank you for listening. Hope you had a great time and see you again next week.